Foxly is all about helping people to feel confident in dealing with difficult customers, build trust, and strong relationships. In this podcast, we talk to talented people to share insights and tips on how they do it. Welcome to Thinking Outside the Fox. Welcome, Dan. So I want to welcome Dan Collins to Thinking Outside the Fox. Uh, Dan is one of the co-founders of the Applied Influence Group. He spent a full 22-year career in the British Army before leaving to help set up the Applied Influence Group. They learn what they know about influence on high-stakes military intelligence operations. And since establishing the group six years ago, they've worked with customers to apply that methodology to business outcomes, working with customers ranging from account leaders in Fortune 500 companies to coaches and staff in elite sports teams. They help teams build influence campaigns and work with individuals to improve their ability to influence the interactions they have. Outside of work, Dan likes to hedge lay and this also supports Ipswich Town. Welcome along, Dan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Tell us a little bit about the Applied Influence Group and and some of your uh, philosophies. Yeah, so uh, as you said, we're a specialist influence consultancy. We believe influence is the ability to change how people think, how they feel and how they act in a way that aligns with your goals over an extended period on those military operations that you talked about. We built a repeatable methodology that we think teams can apply. So not just individuals in their individual interactions, but groups can apply to help influence the goals that they've got, whether that is closing a 50 million pound RFP whether it is getting um, someone in your organisation to do something, so in a change management role, um, whether it is as part of an elite sports team, getting the best out of your athletes. We're all trying to change how people think, feel and act. And most of us do it subconsciously, relying on our own experiences, our own intuitions. And really what we bring is a a way of applying a a defined process, uh, some common models that everyone can, can buy into and can contribute to, so that you can leverage the sum of all your, your influence parts, the people that you've got, the interactions that you're having, so that you improve the likelihood of uh, achieving the outcomes that you're after. So in this series of the podcast, we're really interested in talking about motivation and motivating people. And that sounds like something which sits very much at the heart of, of what you guys do. Um, what do you see as being the fundamentals of, of motivation and motivating people to, to act? So I think um, often when people are trying to influence any kind of outcome, they will have a logical, rational, scientific, business reason, whatever, as to why someone should do it. Um, When you can bring in the motivational aspect of that and understand the individual's perspective, what drives them, um, both to and from decisions, um, if you can align that with that logical, biz- sound business reason for, for doing something, then it's going to feel much more powerful. It will feel much more relevant to the individual um, and get much better buy into the, the logical and rational that goes alongside it. Um, so from an influence perspective, the more that you can understand an individual's motivations, the better place you are to align that business message that you've got with those. Um, and that significantly increases your chance of success. So I always think it's slightly misleading when people talk about the logic and reasoning behind decision making. I think that we often like to believe that we've made logical decisions, but very often when I talk to people, it's emotions that 
that matter. And we tend to layer on the logic afterwards. And I do find it fascinating when I deal with customers and clients who try and argue that they've got facts and information and that's what's going to persuade people to make decisions. I, I think values and politics are massively influential and often underestimated when it comes to motivating people to change or understanding what's motivating people's activity. Yeah, I think so. We, you, you talked about um, sort of values and politics there. We talk about desires and fears, which, which we think are really important. And I think the key point is that if you can identify the right ones of those and tune your message to apply to those, it's almost opening the door to the logic and reasoning that comes behind it, um, which people do then need often because they need to sell a decision internally. So you do need to have that to back it up. But if you can get that buy into what it is that people desire, if you can understand what it is that they fear and, and how what it is that you're asking them to do applies to that, um, then, then that really, the, the, the logic and the reasoning or the, the sound business case or the sound technological case, if you're looking at, at you know selling a large technological solution to another customer, you still need all of that, but if you can if you can align it, it, it feels more personal. It feels more relevant, um, and that's what will get people to focus on the the other stuff. I think. Yeah, I absolutely agree that I'm a big believer in towards motivation and away from motivation. And I think about exams and and my kids and and their friends and some of the conversations that they have, and. You know, I know people, and my, my son's a great example, who's very much towards motivated. He's always hoping for success. And his attitude to exams is, I want to do the best I possibly can, and I'm going to study hard to get the best grade I can. My daughter, totally different attitude. She doesn't want to fail exams, and it's in a way from motivation. So she has fear of making mistakes or fear of getting it wrong. But she's happy to study enough just to make it go away so just to do enough to pass the exam and almost she feels a waste if she studied too hard what's your what's your thoughts on this in terms of people's motivation to be you know fear as a motivator or, or hope as a motivator um so like i said a minute ago we we, we use a, a desires and fears model to help us um de- develop effective influence messaging and for either of those, if you can identify which desires and fears are relevant to an individual, you can either add to or remove um, both of those. So you can have a, a, a to a desire, you can have an away from a desire, you can have a to a fear and an away from a fear. Um, and it's then a case about working out which one's going to be most effective or using a combination of them through a conversation. So as an example, if someone desires power, and by power we're talking about being able to control outcomes and, and, and make your own decisions that allow those to be affected. Then you might have a, a business proposal that would allow that individual to, to, to gain that control that they, af- they were after. And you could talk a lot about how, you know, if they were to go with that, that, that proposition, that it would give them that control. You can talk the away from that is saying, you know, if you don't do this, you're missing out on an opportunity to really gain control over this bit of your business that you're after. And you can do exactly the same with fear and you can increase the fear and you can be the one that takes it away. And actually, at, at times, being the one that, that removes a fear or a threat that someone has um, can be incredibly powerful, um, almost like the, the knight in shining armour that's coming to kind of save the day. That can be really powerful, and uh, uh, and that's where we sort of add a add a layer to um, a, a to and a, a, an away from 
um, approach to thinking about this. That's really fascinating. I, I, I hadn't really thought about the idea of um, the concept of an, taking a desire away. I think that's that's really interesting and as, as a motivator, or you're going to lose the opportunity. Um, this fear of loss, I think, is a is a powerful motivator, but I'd never really thought about it as being losing something I'm about to gain. I think yeah. that's, that's incredible. <laughs> and if you think about it from a, a business context, you know, a lot of our client base are, are based in the technology um, uh, sector, and that they've got you know the organisations that they work with or are selling into have you know really really complex needs these days. Um, and often, you know, what, what the client actually needs is some simplicity or some stability or simplification. And it might be that this 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 solution that you're taking to the client allows that. And, you know, if they don't go to it, they're going to continue to have the chaos that they've had. They're missing out on that brilliant opportunity to rationalize, simplify whatever it is that, that, that they want they want to. And that can be really powerful. So I was interested, Dan, in around the personalizing um solutions i'm a big believer on people make decisions not organizations make decisions and i but i hear a lot from clients that i work with on what their customer objective might be you know what does my customer want as at a business level and they often miss out on what is it that the person i'm talking to wants and needs and hopes for um, and when we try and have a conversation, or I try and challenge them to have a conversation about specifically what does this person want, they really struggle with deeply understanding and deeply motivating. And I remember that when we first met, I went to a fantastic day, introduction day with you guys, where you talked through some of your methodology and some of your layers of thinking behind there. And I, I remember at the time, and I don't know how, how impactful this has been in the future, but one of the people we had to profile was Boris Johnson and find <laughs> information about Boris Johnson and what motivates Boris Johnson. And it was a great exercise. And I, I took a lot away from that around the personalization. How do you encourage people to really get into the detail of the specific people that, they, that they're engaging with? Because I'm assuming you agree with me that it's not about the organization, it's about the person you're talking to. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I totally agree. It's about the person you're, you're talking to. I think there's an added layer to that, that it's also potentially the other people in their organization that the person that you're talking to is going to have to go and sell the idea to. So there can be a layer beyond it where you're trying to identify the motivations of the contact that you've got, but also how can you help that individual who you might be able to get to buy into what you're saying to personalize the message to their boss or to the ultimate decision maker who you might not be interacting with. Um, but the way that, that we do it is um, we use uh, a, a model called the 16 desires, which comes from an American psychologist called Stephen Rees. Um, and during our time in on those military operations, we'd been looking at, at why were people um, joining insurgent networks? Why were they taking part in terrorist activities? And we'd come up with a whole list of reasons, of t tangible reasons why people were doing it. For some, it was quite ideologically driven. For some, it was about feeding their family. For some, it was about they had quite a low place in society, and this was a way of elevating that. And when we came across six, Stephen Reese's 16 Desires, it gave us a really good, sound, underpinning way of trying to examine how these more tangible things sort of fitted at a base level. And that then allowed us to work out what was it and how could we change our message to really land with that individual. 
And exactly the same happens in the, the business sector. So having a list of those 16, which are things like power, status, independence, vengeance, social contact, idealism, honour, are some of the 16 that Reese talked about. It allows you as a team or as an individual to ask yourselves, which of these 16 do I think are, are really relevant to that individual? What's the evidence that I've got for that? And why, why do I think this is important? Um, and then how can I change my message to align that? And it might be that we need to try some of that messaging, see if it resonates when we have an interaction or conversation with someone. Um, it might be that we've got it slightly wrong and we need to change it. But at least we've got a common framework for thinking about it. And particularly when you're doing this at an organisational level and you might be part of a team who is interacting with your customer and different people are having different interactions. To have a common way to talk about it is really, really useful, we think, to say, you know, is this person status driven? Well, yes, I think so. Or no, I don't think it is quite that. I think it's more or this um, it is really powerful and allows you to leverage that, you know, the, the sum of the parts that is your team. So does that mean that your starting point is those 16 desires and you, you challenge your clients to work through those and understand almost rank them as what's most important for the their people their audience yeah so so reese talked about these the, the 16 desires and the, there are some good articles online for anyone who's interested in that um, what reese didn't talk about was fear which is, is something that we found was a, a much more powerful motivator at times um, unlike our desires that might be relatively fixed through our life so those of us who try to achieve high status are, are likely to continue to do that um, fear only comes about um, when we perceive there to be a threat. So it can be quite transitory, can be quite changeable, might not always be present, um, but wasn't really something that Reese tapped upon. So the other thing that when we're working with our clients that we, we, we really get them to do is to try and work out what threats they think this individual might be feeling, um, how might they be manifesting, and, and how does what you're doing impact on those? So if you think about the amount of change that most organisations are going through, um, some individuals really struggle with conflict and change often brings lots of conflict with it. So that might be an example of um, a threat that someone might, might feel. This is going to be some more change. There's going to be loads more difficult conversations. It's going to bring me into conflict with these people. And that might then be that you actually change your message to to be one around fear, um, whether you're increasing it and saying, well, it is going to be about uncomfortable, but if you don't make this change now, that conflict is only going to escalate because your current system or process isn't working and you're already in conflict. And therefore, kind of going through it, it's probably going to reduce it. It might be that you change your message to say, well, we, we can take away a lot of that. We can deal with it for you. So I think there's two aspects to it. It really is important that as well as identifying those desires, you can work out what are the threats that the individual's facing and, and what's that mean for what it is that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I, th I think that's massively relevant. And, and just listening to what you were talking there, I, it's something I see a lot with clients is the fear of um, uncomfortable conversations, the f particularly with regard to negotiations or particularly with regard to internal change, telling people things that they're not going to like, giving unpopular opinions and unpopular news. And, and I often see people shy away from that. They would rather escape. And, and interestingly, when I'm working with people commercially to 
to increase prices or to change commercial terms, their motivation is to get it over with as quickly as they possibly can. And it actually drives a lot of their behavior, not because they don't want the change, not because they're not hoping for the success of the change, but actually the process that they're going through is so intimidating. They find it hard to to manage and they they have this real need to escape or this fear to escape and they they agree to suboptimal things they rush through the process um, and that's a very personal manifested um evidence of this this fear that that almost gets in the way of of people making smart decisions or, or doing what they they think is the right thing to do in when it comes into the conversations or the the meetings that they're having with their customers the other thing that i that it, just struck me as you were talking was then the difference between short-term and long-term motivation um you know things that are happening this week this month are front of mind for people and engage them and the longer term future um doesn't necessarily play a part and and when we spoke the other day one of the things that you we talked about was some of the challenges you have with sports teams where you've got players who have a short-term focus where there might be a slightly long-term change to be done with one of the coaches and i'm interested in your thoughts on on how you manage that and and how you engage people around those those challenges um again i think it's it, it's kind of exactly the same process that we're looking at is is trying to work out um what are the desires are the longer-term fears that you can use um so people often shy away from or poorly use increasing fear as a as a technique, um, and when I say poorly used, I think often where it's poorly used is that people will increase a fear that the other person really doesn't buy into. So, so, so talk to me about what you mean by increasing fear. What's so it might be that there's um, an individual where there's something that they really should be worried about that's going to have a serious impact on them that due to a lack of information or a lack of understanding they're not scared of they, they don't they don't feel any fear because they they don't perceive the threat to, to be there or the threat to be real and actually in those times if it's a genuine misunderstanding or, 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 or lack of understanding from an individual making an individual relevant of that of that fear is really important and is the ethical thing to do because there are some things that we, you know, we should be concerned about, um, and therefore, kind of increasing fear in an individual might be right. So, to use your sporting analogy, you know, one of the challenges that that we find is sometimes with performance teams who are trying to get a player to reduce minutes or to do some certain types of rehabilitation um, because they need to get over a short-term injury or or a particular issue that they've got. It might be that the player has a contract that's due to be renewed fairly soon and is desperate to be playing whatever the sport is so they can show how good they are um, and really don't want to kind of reduce the, the time or spend the time doing the rehab. Um, and in that case, it, you know, what might be appropriate is, is talking through with the player about the potential of worsening that injury, of turning it from a, a short-term minor issue into a long-term career-ending one. And exactly the same thing often happens with our technology clients when they're dealing with their their customers, where individuals might fear the short-term pain of disruption or of 
um, changing over a service of, of short-term outages. But actually, if they don't, the long-term pain of you know, critical business failures is, is really significant. Um, and that's really a case of you know, where do you focus? Do you try and remove the, the short-term fear? Do you try and focus it on a different desire? Do you have to increase the, 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 the fear of the, the longer-term, more serious implications and make that feel really real and present for that individual? Um, it's about working out what, what the best course of action is in any given situation. I don't think there's a particular right or wrong. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that that idea of the injury and rehabilitation resonates really strong with me. I've heard so many of those conversations and I've been on the end of those conversations playing with injuries because I don't want to miss out on on what's happening or, or the opportunity or you, you're in a cup run and therefore you don't want to miss out playing in the semi-final or playing in a final, even though you might risk worsening an injury or underperforming because you're carrying yeah. the injury. Actually, the the opportunity of, of being in a team is really important. And it, it reminded me of just talking about the, the short-term and long-term motivation, a conversation I had uh, back in the early 90s. This was when I was playing professionally with uh, a company came in to talk about rehydration after matches. And at that point, it's fairly new in rugby league. And I, I remember that um, they were trying to get people to to not drink after games, drink, drink alcohol after games, and instead to be drinking isotonic sports drinks and, and all this salted stuff. Um, and they'd done some surveys, they'd done some research, and they, they weighed us all before the game at halftime and after the game just to measure the, the loss of water during the game. And then based on these results, they were then trying to present the evidence of how it was affecting performance during the season and therefore what, we should do differently and a couple of the, the props I remember standing up in the meeting and saying well if I drink four pints of beer at the end of the game surely that's helping me rehydrate and by the way beer also contains carbohydrate which is what <laughs> you've just said um, and trying to convince them that that they should change their behavior was fascinating because that was one of the things they look forward to these were professional sportsmen at the top of the game Back in the early '90s, drinking four pints of beer after the game was just what they looked forward to. Yeah, and I think you know, if you look at sporting examples, I think R Ronaldo is kind of often held up as that example of how that short-term change can can bring long-term gain, um, and how I think it was the first time he went to Manchester United that he he wouldn't eat any of the dessert in a restaurant, and overnight, virtually all the players stopped eating dessert in the restaurant because they'd seen um, the benefits of it and that's where kind of outside of the individual motivations of desires and fears you can start to use external motivators um, concepts like social proof um, authority um, and use those to elevate that individual message that you've personalized make it feel even stronger and more powerful um, and bring in relevant, tangible examples of, of where things have happened elsewhere or, or why things should be done. Yeah, I, I love that. I absolutely love that. I think elevating the message, because one of the points that I was wanting to move on to was to talk about background noise. We had a conversation about the amount of complexity that's in organisations and different communications channels um, and how actually when you're talking to a customer, 
you're not the only one. You're not the face of your company. They're seeing and talking to other people, whether that's customer service, whether it's supply chain, whether it's you know a whole range of other people that they might be involved with. And so because you deliver the message doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only message that they hear. That's a challenge for, for influence and for motivating people to change because they may be getting conflicting messages. How do you manage that? Um, I think a lot of organisations don't manage it particularly well. Um, I think that's often because they don't have a clear, focused campaign of actually how they're trying to influence a situation, so particularly in selling situations. Um, and that means that some of those people who might be around the periphery don't really understand what's trying to be achieved or how they, they play into it. They don't understand the the wider intent of the organisation, You know what's trying to be achieved. Um, and therefore they don't have the context. So um, one, I think having a clear, concise uh, campaign or, or campaign message that, that this is what we're trying to achieve, this is your role in it. Um, before you can do that, you need to, you do need to understand who is interacting in that situation. You know, what are the interactions that are taking place um, and, and how do they, how do those messages being transmitted? I think a lot of organizations don't do that. And that's primarily because often people are so busy doing that they don't spend enough time spending a bit of time sat back thinking about what it is they want to do how they want to go about achieving it and and how they can communicate that internally before they go off and doing things and that's a that's a prime challenge that we find with a lot of our large corporate um, customers um, is the real focus on action and just the ridiculously busy lives that people leave, not spending a bit of time up front thinking about it and communicating that internally means that you don't get the dividends later down the line. I find it particularly relevant with clients I work with who are negotiating with their employees. So whether that's terms and conditions or, or changes in working practices or even pay negotiations. And I try and describe it as negotiating with your brother, that you live in the same house and your brother knows everything about who you are and what you do and then you decide one day that you're going to try and negotiate with him you've got to remember that he sees and hears everything that's going on in that household and and that's what happens within the organizations information is really difficult to manage and therefore if you're if you see it as a us and them negotiation it you're always going to struggle because there's no way that you can you can manage that communication in the right way. And I think it's the flip side of when you're trying to communicate a certain message to an organization, to people within the business, you've got to remember that there's a whole lot of interconnections, of background noise, of people who know other people that are all going on in the background. And therefore, coming back to this idea of how do you elevate your message, I think becomes really powerful as a tool. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, I think that's why, you know, organisations spending a bit of time thinking about that, thinking about what the messages are, and then working out how they communicate that internally, how they can get a feedback loop from those individuals who might not be in decision making positions, but will be interacting with the client. How do you make them feel that they're a valued part of that campaign? How do you get them feel that they're bought into it? so that when they go and have an interaction, they might learn something that's really useful for those senior people in the organization to know. They'll have access to information that, that you know the account leader won't have, um, but you need to make them feel that they're a part of it. You need to get 
buy-in from people um, and finding effective ways to communicate around this, I think, is, is really key. And the technology in most organisations exists now to do that, whether it's something like Microsoft Teams and, and you know, having a channel that allows you to communicate around and interactions that people have had or that they're going to have. Um, the technology often exists within the organisations to do it. It's just not often particularly well used, I don't think. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you think you're right. Or it's maybe used too much. <laughs> people have got too yeah. many Teams channels and too many instant message channels and emails and, and whatever going around. And, it, and it's hard to control and to manage the communication that that people get. I want to I want to revisit this idea around the fears, though, because one thing that I think is interesting is apathy. Um, that people are fairly apathetic and and. I was talking to a friend of mine a few weeks ago about employment relations and he was talking about the transport industry and saying that uh, people come in to make big change in the transport industry and the guys who are in the trade unions have been there for 30 years and they've seen managers come and go and managers with their strong messages or with their need for change and the desire for change and they become apathetic towards what's going on and they and they don't get it and i love the view that you had from your experience out in afghanistan on how quickly a, a genuine fear changes to a you know okay it's not it's not scary to me anymore yeah so i think there's 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 a couple of things at play there one is that um we can become kind of inured to um to 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 threats that that don't kind of end up with a, a tangible result. So fear only comes about when we perceive there to be a threat. Um, and those threats can come about, we think, in, in kind of one of three ways. There can be a change in a situation. So, you know, think about a typical organisation that's going to, um, I don't know, go through a bit of an organisational restructure. That would be a change of a situation that might drive fears in certain people. Um, fears can be stimulated by some kind of interaction with someone or something. So if someone says something to you, that might um, drive there to be a threat that, that fear flows from. Um, and also we can sort of self-induce fears and create them in our own minds. Um, I think the problem with sort of the apathy is when the threat um, doesn't manifest itself, it, it doesn't lead to anything. Um, the other um, side to that is that are typically in nature three responses to a perceived threat we either fight we flight we flee um, or we freeze and i think often trying to work out exactly why the threat that you think is there or that your stakeholders should see isn't leading to a response is really important so is it an apathy that i've heard this threat a hundred times or people have told me this is a problem a hundred times and nothing's ever happened and therefore, I don't really believe you. Um, is it that actually you do believe that there's a, a, th a real threat and a fear, but you've frozen and, and you just become um, you know, locked in and you don't want to take any action because you think it might make it worse? Um, is it that you're, fear you're fearful of the consequences of, of that threat leading to more conflict? Um, so really kind of working out, you know, why is the apathy there? Is it a, a freeze reflex or is it that people just don't believe the threat to be true anymore then allows you to do something about it? Um, but you've got to work out which one it is first. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I advise people that doing nothing is a strategy. 
Um, but it needs to be a proactive strategy. It needs to be a choice that you decide that we're going to do nothing, which might mean gathering more information. It might mean um, waiting for a period of time to see if there's a, you know if this is a short-term issue that will resolve itself. But very often it becomes a, a, the standard approach to everything, which is well, let's just do nothing, and then you know if we need to worry about it, then we'll worry about it later. And I find it massively frustrating with clients who whose actual response is that and and it's an interesting concept i'd never really considered it as being apathy to change versus fear of making it worse and i think that's the the interesting one is making it worse or or making it worse for a personal perspective that's what i'm thinking about now is you might not be making the situation worse but i might be making my own life complicated more complicated than it should be i'm creating more work for myself i'm creating more tension within my team and if i do nothing maybe somebody else will fix it or maybe it'll go away or maybe you know whatever whatever freeze looks like it might not necessarily be apathy um i think that's a really interesting idea dan what do you think about motivating customers versus motivating colleagues do you see a massive difference if you're working in a team and you're trying to get people to to join you on your program and your project of change, or you're working in a team, you're in a, a sports team, and you're trying to inspire your colleagues, is that a different type of motivation to that of motivating customers? We think exactly the same model applies. How you go about using it might change very much on the culture of your your organisation and your colleagues. So we did a session fairly recently with a, a, a new senior leadership team that was being formed. And we went in and we talked about this model, our, our, our desires and fears model and the threats. And it was really good atmosphere, really open, lots of sharing from people. Um, and what that allowed with that sort of transparency was for people to say, yeah, I, I think this is a, you know, these are the threats that I think are going to be there, either for me or for, for others in the organisation. I think this is the fears that we need to be really um, aware of both in myself and, and others um, and if you can get that really open transparent level of, of dealing with things then it can really fundamentally change the conversation internally ideally you want to get to the same stage with with a customer and, and be that open and transparent but I, th- I think it's often a lot more difficult to do that um, but that really does take a, a, a strong culture of trust um, and if that doesn't exist then I think exactly the same model applies. It is just more about trying to identify amongst your colleagues which of these fears and desires are, are relevant. How do you change your message to tie into one? Are you elevating a desire? Are you talking about the missing out on opportunity? Can you be the one who removes the fear? Whatever it is that you're going to do, um, exactly the same process I think applies. Yeah, I think it's about agendas. <clears throat> one of the things that... Um makes it easy to influence and to motivate people is is to understand their agenda. And the more you understand about them, the more you can tap into what you know to to connect with them. And I think that's the challenge often with customers. I, I hear salespeople uh, repeating product features on the hope that it's going to resonate with their customer. I I hear people ask me, what's the what's the silver bullet? What's the one thing that I can say to people that will get them to to act? Um, they're seeking an, an easy solution. And the truth is that you need to get to know people. And you also need to do that. You need to set aside your agenda, I think. And at a, uh, at a conversation on LinkedIn this week about exactly that is how do we generate opportunities 
for meetings with customers if we only get one opportunity if it's a if we're trying to sell to a prospect and my advice to that is well if it's a prospect now it will be still be a good prospect in 12 months time or six months time and if you see it that way then you can see it as an opportunity to get to know them and contribute to your community or the community of people who share the same challenges and problems that you have over a period of time rather than well, I've got one meeting where I need to influence them so what do I need to say to them and I think it then becomes a more of an engagement rather than a a broadcast yeah I, I totally agree with that and I, th I think you know that taps into sort of something that we're not really touched on which is the importance of sort of planning for those interactions that you're going to have and one of the key things that we see across all our customer base is that people don't spend enough time planning for the interaction with the person. They might spend time planning or developing their slide deck that's got the technical business specs, whatever in it. But thinking about the person on the other end of that interaction, people don't spend enough time. And the first thing that we ask people to consider when they're planning for an interaction is what is it that I want to get out of this interaction? And that can be very different to what is my end goal. So in the example that you gave, the, the goal for the first interaction might be to have a second interaction. Uh, and if you go into it being really clear about that, how you approach that might be very different. And it does become a let's get to know you, let's get to know each other, understand each other a bit better. Um, and hopefully sparking enough interest that people do want to have a, a second interaction, which might then be where you do start to talk a bit more about what you do. And, and that's frequently a, a model that we do. But you can only do that if you're really clear going into that interaction with, with what your goal is. And if the goal is to close a sale or to get a, a follow-up sales call, then that's quite different how you might go about achieving that to if your goal is, I want this person to think that they want to speak to me again. Mm. yeah totally totally get it um yeah the 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 sad thing is it always comes back to planning and i say that as a sad thing because that's often the challenge i hear from people who say oh i don't have time to plan i don't we we have so many plans that we need to do um do you guys have a top tips things to think through that i've got 15 minutes before i'm meeting somebody um not necessarily meeting them in 15 minutes time but i've got 15 minutes how much could you do in 15 minutes, Dan? What's your advice? So I think even even with that length of time, um, I think you can. You can think about that first question, which is, you know, what is it that I'm trying to get out of this, this meeting? And I regularly see interactions where people clearly haven't thought about that, largely because they're bouncing from one Teams or Zoom call to another Teams or Zoom call um, with no time. So being clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve. Um, being really clear about what you know about the individual and what's relevant for that interaction, whether it's thinking about a fear or desire that they have, whether it's thinking about something that you know that you can use to build rapport with, whether it's thinking about the preferences that you know that individual has, maybe a communication preference or how they like to absorb information. And the more that you can build up a, a knowledge or understanding of an individual over a period of time, the easier it is to answer that question, which is, you know, what's relevant about this person as a human being for this next interaction that I'm going to have? Um, so I think even in 15 minutes, if you can answer just those two questions, you know, what is it that I'm trying to achieve and what's relevant about the individual I'm about to speak to or individuals, if there's more than one person on the call, then you are going to be in a much better place. And just on a practical um, 
uh, uh, tip, one of the things that I've done is change the default on Outlook. So all my meetings are now um, 25 minutes or 50 minutes long. And you can do that. And that's fundamentally changed things for me because all the meetings that I now set up, I definitely have 10 minutes at the end of it or five minutes if it's only a 30-minute meeting. And I, I actually think all, you know, at an organisational level, that there's so much that could be achieved if people just change those defaults that would mean that they weren't just jumping from one call to another call with no preparation time at all, which yeah. is a problem that most organisations have, I think. Yeah, buy yourself five minutes just to do some thinking, yeah. clear your head. Yeah, it's a whole. There's a whole uh, topic that we could open there on 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 those kind of execution things. But I think that's fantastic. Some really good tips. Um, thanks for the conversation, Dan. It's been fascinating to get a bit of a final insight into you as a person. We asked a question to to all of our guests here. Um, so, what advice would you give to a twelve year old you? So it wasn't until much later in life that I really understood what introversion was. And I'm quite strongly introverted. I think there's lots of misconceptions about it. So introversion and extroversion are really to do with how much stimulus you um, thrive off. So an extrovert will feel energised in situations where there's a huge amount of stimulus, whereas an introvert will generally feel um, stimulated in situations where where there's not where there's quite a lot of peace and quiet and calm and a lack of stimulus um, and I thought in my younger years that I knew I was introverted quite early I thought that meant that there was lots of things that I couldn't do or that I'd be bad at it's not really the case I can go into lots of really really busy situations and be really effective and deal with lots and lots of people it just makes me really tired <laughs> And at the end of a day of doing that, I'll be absolutely shattered. But I now know how to go and re-energise. So I think learning a bit more about that early on would have really helped me. And the world that we live in is a world that really benefits extroverts, I think, in many, many ways. Um, and therefore, some coping tips for me as an introvert would have been really helpful. So that's, that would be advice to a 12-year-old you. Trust yeah. yourself to be an introvert um, and don't don't blame yourself for it yeah it's not a bad thing there's some really yeah. good aspects of being an introvert there are yeah. some ways that you can cope in a, a an extrovert in a world that's designed for extroverts yeah as a, as an introvert i totally connect to everything that you've just said so uh, I, I i can empathize absolutely and wish i'd given myself that advice too <laughs> cool thanks dan been a great conversation really appreciate you joining us and uh and yeah, and your time and your intellect and your intelligence today. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks very much for having me on. That was Thinking Outside the Fox with me, Chris Weber. Our next episode is out in two weeks. Join us for more great conversations on how to build winning customer relationships. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>